Tonight is entitled Before and After. Somebody say Before and After. If you don't have solid beliefs about what happened before Genesis and what will happen after Revelation, let me read that again. If you don't have solid beliefs about what happened before Genesis and what will happen after Revelation, you might misunderstand much of what happens in between. The, the, the description in the write-up that goes on our website, we, we put one together every week as the, for, for the, the sermon as it's recorded, goes up there, we do a little description of the message. And one of the things I wrote in there is that, is that one of the great consequences of a secular mindset with creation, with the, with the Big Bang Theory, is that nothing existed prior to that. right? And, it, and if nothing existed before, then it takes you down this road that nothing's waiting for us after. And, and, and the gift of a biblical worldview in creation is that there was a whole lot before this universe existed. Come on. And, and there's a lot waiting after. And what we believe before and what we believe after, it creates a context for us to understand everything in between. We believe, as a church, in, in, in Scripture's story that tells of a great rebellion that happened in the heavens before the earth was created. So if Genesis is here, before Genesis, that Lucifer, an angel, led a rebellion in the heavens that the Bible refers to because Lucifer wanted to ascend to the throne. Now we know that he lost that war, and all of the angels that follow after him were cast down to this earthly realm. And then as we continue to read through Scripture, we get to Revelation, which talks about many things, but part of what it talks about is what's to come and what's going to come after. At the end of Revelation, the Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth. Now, there's lots of different beliefs about what that means, but regardless of whether or not you believe that the heaven and the earth that exists today is going to pass away and a completely new heaven and new earth is going to be created, or that God's going to renew what already exists the one thing we all agree on is that it's going to be new, and it's going to be glorious. And God says that you and I were created in this life so that we could be a part of that one. Now, believing these things about what happens after and what happens before creates the context for us to understand everything that happens in between. The stakes are high because in between Genesis and Revelation, we are told that Lucifer, who we now understand to be Satan, and the fallen angels that came with him, not only are they our enemy, but they are God's enemy. And because he is defeated, because he has lost, he takes great pleasure in dragging as many people down with him as he can. And as we read through the texts of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we understand that at the end of time that there will be a judgment and that everybody who willfully chose to side with Lucifer, that, that they will be cast into an eternal hell and suffering with him. The stakes are high. Jesus came to change all that. The grace that he offers, the forgiveness that he gives, makes it possible for our relationship with God to be reconciled. All right, that's a little intro before we dig into the meat of tonight. Who, who, are, my, who are my scary movie people in here tonight? Who, who are my scary movie people? Anybody? A scary, Alan's a scary movie. Do you have a favorite scary movie? You just like them all. 
Okay. All right. Anybody else over this side a scary movie person? Who's this? Any scary movie people? Some people, you just look frightened right now. I can tell that you're not a scary movie. If you're frightened because I'm walking around or you're frightened because of a movie that someone made you watch. Any scary movie people over here? No? Come on. Brennan and Katrina are going to be so disappointed they're not here tonight. Because Katrina's a scary movie person, which I would not. She doesn't strike me as a scary movie person. I am not a scary movie person. Vanessa is not a scary movie person. The, I think I've probably seen two scary movies in, in my entire life, in my entire life. And in the, in, in, in the, 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 one of them was in college called The Hitcher, right? And, and I haven't picked up a hitchhiker ever in my life, right? And will not because of watching that movie. I probably passed by people that I was supposed to help because of the fear that was instilled in me. Because The second scary movie that I saw was in 1999 called A Sixth Sense. Anybody? All right, if you haven't seen that, I'm not going to tell you how it ends. See, all of you people, all, see, see, see what you just did there? You pretended that you didn't like scary movies because the pastor was walking around. But then when I talked about a sixth sense, there was almost a standing ovation that came through the whole congregation because all of you saw that. Now, you might say, well, Fred, that's not a scary movie. You're just a sissy. And I would say to that, you are right. I am. You're right. I am. I went to see that. In 1999, we lived in Richmond, then we lived in the inner city. Vanessa was on a business trip with Capital One. We didn't have any kids at that point. We'd been married for two years, and I was at the Bird Theater, which is in, in downtown Richmond on Cary Street. And I went to the, late, the later feature, and, and when I came out of that movie, I, there was this moment where I'm walking to my car. I'd parked in a parking deck several blocks away, and because it was so late, I found myself, I was, I was all alone in the city late at night, and I, just, and I was so stinking scared. I mean, my heart was beating really fast. In my mind, I was, thinking, I was telling myself, this is dumb, right? This is, this is silly. It's just a movie all the way home. And then I went into my house, right? And we lived in the inner city, and, and I lived in this big home that was built in the early 1900s, and no one else was there. And I thought to myself, I should have left all of the lights on before before I, th I think I probably turned on every light in that house before I, I went to bed. I, I'm not I'm not a, I'm not a scary movie person, right? I don't like that feeling of of being afraid. Some people like scary movies, right? Because they like that adrenaline rush. Not not me. I, I'm I'm sharing that with you because we're going to talk a little bit about Satan tonight and 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 why he is such a central part of the biblical narrative. I, I joke about scary movies. Because if we are allowing modern film and secular mythology to shape what we believe about Satan, we won't recognize his schemes designed for our own destruction. Let me read that again. If we are allowing modern film and mythology to shape what we believe about Satan, we won't recognize his schemes designed for our own destruction. He is not going to show up in our lives, people, as some creature crawling upside down on a ceiling with a growly voice. It's not how he shows up. He's a deceiver. He, he wants to lure us in and away from our Father. Have you ever noticed how central Satan has been in each of these chapters of the story that we have read? In chapter 1, we see him. He's a central player in the garden, right? In the beginning, the very first sin, Satan is there, tempting Adam and Eve. 
And, and then how we're using this resource, right, because we're just doing it for a small group experience. We jumped all the way to chapter 22 to pick up with the Gospels, and we see him there in the slaughter of the innocents. Now, he's not named there, but, but you cannot read about what Herod did and not recognize his hand, right? The, the, the slaughtering of hundreds of these children, of course, it had its origin in the influence of Satan. Chapter 23, we see him in person in the wilderness, confronting Jesus directly. In chapter 24, we see the demoniac that Jesus delivers. And then in chapter 25, what we find is the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. It it, it says that, that he literally entered into Judas as the betrayal was taking place at the Lord's Supper. Now, I just want to drop this in. This is a list of 14 things. I couldn't fit them all in one on slide, so they're going to break up between two. But if, if, if you've never done a study about who Satan is and the role that he plays in, in the Bible, I'm just, I'm just dropping this in. I'm not going to teach on each of these, these 14 things for the sake of time, but I want to read through them. But this comes off of a great website called Logos.com. If you've never been on Logos.com, there's incredible resources there. And this was an article I found just this week that, that talks about 14 facts about Satan. And so again, this is a, would be a great article for you for, to read because they expound on each one of these. But the first one, it says Satan literally means adversary. We, we get that name because it's, it's called a transliteration, meaning that the Hebrew word, that, that when they were trying to translate that into English, we didn't have a word for it. And so transliteration means that we take our alphabet and we create a word that phonetically matches theirs. And so that's how we get the word Satan. But it literally means adversary. Number two, it says pride-fueled Satan's origin story. We already talked about that. He wanted to ascend to the throne of heaven. Satan's domain is now here on earth and in a place called Sheol. If that's new for you, again, check out the article, logos.com. Satan rules the nations of the earth. Satan commands a host of demons. I thought this was interesting. Even I learned something. The Bible does, it actually never says that he rules all of them. I thought that was curious. He may not control all the demons. Number seven is Satan tried to make a deal with Jesus. Let's go to number eight. Satan is on the defensive. Satan is a liar by nature. Satan has spiritual children. Satan influenced Judas Iscariot. I would go even farther because the the actual text says he entered into him, which is beyond influence. Satan's power, come on, of death is broken. Discord gives Satan the advantage. Stop it already. Satan Satan finds a foothold. We're going to talk about footholds tonight. Gives him an advantage. Satan's defeat is certain and imminent. This is also part of this idea of what do you believe before Genesis and what do you believe after Revelation because Revelation already tells us who's going to win. Why would we choose to be on the losing side with the consequences as clearly laid out as they are? Scripture is continually pointing us to a life that guards us from Satan's schemes. While at the same time, the second part is important, reminding us that God always has our best interest at heart. Scripture's continually pointing us to a life that guards us from Satan's schemes. He's defeated, but he is busy. While at the same time reminding us that God always has our best interest at heart. This is so important that especially if you are a parent of young people, that you're communicating and conveying this. Because I think so many people, like myself, grew up with a form of Christianity that was kind of 
pictured for us that, that we're supposed to choose God's side, but, but we just have to accept we're going to have to give up all the fun things along the way. right? I think that's part of the devil's lie. Because then when you dip your toe in the water of exploration and those things that you're not supposed to do, you're going to realize, hey, these things are pretty fun. And then you're going to think maybe the people that are directing and guiding you maybe don't know what they're talking about. Our children grew up in a home where from the moment they were born, the only thing that was presented to them was that a life in full devotion to Jesus is the greatest adventure that you're ever going to have. And even the things in this world, if you experiment with them, that we should not experiment with them, create some sense of enjoyment, whatever that enjoyment is, is actually less than the enjoyment that you could have in a life of full devotion to Jesus. When God says don't do that, it's not because he's a joy stealer, it's because he's trying to protect us from settling from less. So, so we were honest with our kids. Yeah, you can have fun doing that stuff. These things are enjoyable if you want to experiment with them. But, but why settle for less? Because the greater joy, the greater enjoyment is discovering the person that God created you to be and to do the things that God called you to do. It's so important that we're able to posture ourselves like Jesus did when he stood in the wilderness and the devil tempted him on those three different occasions and he followed after what we find later in the epistles through the pattern that was given to us by way of insight that we can overlay it with the, with the wilderness, that the, 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 uh, uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the three ways that he came at Jesus and those are the three ways that he comes at us. But, but when Jesus was standing there, you never got this sense that, that Jesus felt like he was settling for less by denying the temptation because he understood that what God had to offer him was always better. I hope you're modeling that mindset for your children. I hope you're walking in that yourself. Every temptation that you have that comes to you, you have a chance to resist it. Listen to this verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, right? That's just in case for all of us at some point in our lives where I've said it, I trust you have too, where, where someone's saying you can resist it and you have this thought of, yeah, but you don't know what it's like. Well, they might not know what it's like, but God says he knows what it's like and he sets a limit on how far the temptation can go. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience and God is faithful. Listen to what it says. And will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. That means every time you face something in this life, this pull towards something that you know is wrong, God says, hey, I've already given you everything that you need to say no to that. And you have the power and the ability to resist it in that moment. You don't have to give in. This idea of the devil made me do it is a lie. He will not allow the temptation to be more then what you could say, and when you're tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can do it. There is always an off-ramp in every moment of temptation. There's always an off-ramp. But you're driving the vehicle, you've got to choose to turn the wheel. It's like following the GPS. The blue line might go in one direction, but, but you've got to take the car there. The same is true for temptation. You have a will. God gives you a way out. 
you got to follow that blue line and take that off ramp and resist the temptation when it comes. Ephesians 4, 27 to 28 reads this way. Do not give the devil a foothold. This I referred to that earlier. This is so important. You, you give the devil a foothold in your life when you willfully do things that you know that you're not supposed to do. And when you willfully choose to not do the things that you should. Don't give the devil a foothold. Verse 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. I read verse 28 because if you read the verses before 27 and you keep going after 28, this is Paul talking about things that we shouldn't do, and then he talks about things that we should do. And right in the middle of that, he uses this phrase, do not give the devil a foothold. Why does he drop that in there? It's like he's preaching. He's saying, hey, do this and don't do that and do this and don't do that. Because when you step into a place of willful disobedience, you're giving the devil a foothold in your life. You're giving him access to your will that does not belong to him because it belongs to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit should be the loudest, most dominant voice in your life guiding you along the way. I don't want the devil to have a seat at the table in my life. 2 Peter 3, 9, I love this. It says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, talking about his return, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Come on, aren't you glad he's patient with us? Not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. Every temptation that we face in this life, that you face in this life, you already, even now, have the ability to say no to it. You have the ability to take the off-ramp, to follow the leading and the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Don't give the devil a foothold in your life and know that God is on your side. God is on your side. It's his desire that everyone come into relationship with him. Somebody say, stay alert. 1 Peter 5.8 reads this way. Stay alert, watch out, for your great enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Peter's reminding us that even though our enemy is defeated, he is busy, he is active, and he is menacing. But the only power that he has is the power that we give to him. The only influence it has in our lives is the only influence that we offer. I'm going to give you four quick phrases that come out of the reading for this week. Because I believe that in each of them, Jesus is showing us something about how we're supposed to posture our lives so that we can resist the temptations that come to us. On page 353, Jesus said this to Peter, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, when does he say this? He says this, if you turn to a, a traditional Bible in, 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 in Matthew 16, where, where he says that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We referred to that tonight when we were praying over the Kimball's. But, but here in this interaction where Jesus is saying to his disciples, hey, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And then in that conversation, he speaks, speaks plainly to them. And he says, hey, I'm going to have to die. 
Because their concept of a Messiah was that it was going to be an earthly king and establish an earthly kingdom like you read in the Old Testament, that Israel was going to be restored to this political power on earth. They didn't understand that Jesus was there to build a spiritual kingdom. So now he's speaking plainly to them and telling them, hey, you guys, you guys are confused. You don't understand. I'm going to, ha- I'm going to die very soon. The Bible says that Peter pulls him aside and tries to correct him. And, and this is the, the famous story where, where Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Right? Now, lots of people have different views on this. I'm just going to share you mine. I don't think he was talking to Peter right there. I think he was talking to the devil. I think the devil was, was present in that moment, just like he was present in the wilderness. And other people didn't see him because they lacked the spiritual eyes to do so. When, when you read in 2 Kings 6, you have this incredible story of Elisha, who's a prophet, And there's a foreign army that has sent out a kill squad to find him. And the reason they want to find him is because every time they attack Israel, God gives Elisha their military plan. And even though Israel's a lesser nation, they defeat the invading enemy. And finally, somebody says, we can't win. There's not a traitor amongst us. As their God tells this guy, Elijah, what we're going to do, we don't have a chance. And so they send out an army. One early morning, Elisha wakes up, and his servant steps outside the cabin, and as he looks, that, kill, that vast kill squad is there on the hillside, ready to attack. He runs back in like I would have done, crying and screaming. Right? It's a real version of a scary movie. And Elisha walks out with him, right, calm as can be, and he prays for his servant, and he prays that God would open his eyes. It's a powerful story. And and all of a sudden, he's able to see that there is another army that is present. But it is not an earthly army. It's a heavenly army that has surrounded. Now, if you want to know the end of the story, you've got to read it yourself. I'll tell you, 2 Kings 6. I'll tell you where it is. You've got to do the the work yourself. Jesus had the ability to see the spiritual realm, even though he walked in this earthly realm. And for me, what I think was happening there is he was saying to Satan, hey, you shut up, right? And then he begins to talk to Peter about vision and plans and purposes and future and how he was going to be the center of it. It's, it's like if you're a parent and, 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 and there's something going on between your kids and everybody's talking and, and then you're not allowed to say shut up in your home, right? Because I'm not trying to teach your children bad words here. Right, but but you might have had to say to one of your kids, "Hey, you, hey, you be quiet. You you be quiet." Right, you're trying to establish some order so that you can assert your leadership and your dominance. There's there's times in our lives where where the devil is whispering in our ear, or those that are working on his behalf. See, just like with Peter, if we are overly attached to this earthly existence, listen to me. If we are overly attached with this earthly existence, we can find ourselves vulnerable to the temptations of the enemy. See, this idea of Jesus dying, Peter was like, no, 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 no. We're not having any of that. Because for them, it was all about now. And Jesus is trying to help them to say, no, no, no. Everything about now is supposed to serve what's to come. And if we're not careful... If we only have a mind that is concerned with human things, that we will miss out on the concerns of God 
and we can find ourselves vulnerable to temptation. Number two, page 355, it says they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Oh, I like this one. Are you enthusiastic about Jesus? The capacity for enthusiasm that we have as human beings is awesome. I don't know about you, thank you. But I have some things that I'm enthusiastic about, and one of them is food. We were out to dinner a few years ago with some friends, and they said, could we just come out to dinner with you guys? Just You, you don't even have to talk with us. We just want to listen to you and Vanessa talk about the food that you're eating. Because we love food. Domoishi, where's is Michael Terrence in here, right? Introduce me, right, to Domoishi. Was it last year? We went that Saturday, changed my life forever. The crispy spring rolls there, the, the, oh, the broth. Come on, stop it. I'm going to have to get some tonight. Right? You, there, there's, there should be some things in your life that you're enthusiastic about. Whether other people are enthusiastic about them or not, there should be some things that you love doing. I like buying and selling stuff. If you follow me on Facebook, you're like, Lord have mercy. Somebody asked me the other day, are you, Fred, are you going through a midlife crisis? Like, no, I just like buying and selling stuff. I get excited. I like checking my Facebook Messenger when I get up in the morning to see if anybody made me an offer. Like a good deal. If you got something to sell, let me know. I might buy it. And then I might turn around and sell it and make money, and then you're going to be upset. But that was your fault because you didn't sell it yourself. And then I tithe on that. Give money to the church. Come on. See, I worked that in there. Just worked, just worked it in. I love the art of film. Vanessa will say, have you seen that movie before? I'll say, yeah, probably 20 times. She's like, why do you keep watching it? Because it's awesome. I get excited about storytelling, the art of media, and, and, and choreography, cinematography, all of it, every part of it, script writing. I love watching movies that came out decades ago, and then someone who's a megastar now, and they just had a bit role then. And you look at them, they know, the world didn't even know who they were. Things that I'm enthusiastic about. You know what else I'm enthusiastic? I'm enthusiastic about Jesus. There are things in your life that you're enthusiastic about. I'm working through my list. You've got a list. Things that you just get excited about when you start talking about them. Is Jesus one of them? People who know you, if we gave them a survey that said, tell me, fill in the blank, your name, some things that they're enthusiastic about, would Jesus be on the list that they would give to describe you? Is there passion inside of you for who he is? The more time you spend expressing your enthusiasm about Jesus, the less likely you'll be distracted by the shiny object that Satan dangles in front of your face. The more time you spend expressing your enthusiasm about Jesus, the less likely you will be distracted by the shiny object that Satan dangles in your face. Number three, page 358, where Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. Now, people that, that read the Bible and say Jesus never actually claimed to be God, it's because they don't understand the language of Jesus. It's because they don't understand the culture. Jesus claimed to be God many, many times. But guess what? He wasn't talking to Americans. Ameri I know this is going to come as a shock to you, but America did not even exist when Jesus was doing what he was doing as a nation. The culture of America did not exist. J Jesus is a Jewish man talking predominantly to a Jewish audience, an ancient people 2,000 years. Still exists today, but a different culture then. 
Some of it is carried forward, but some of it is not. So Jesus engaged the people in a language that they could understand. And he spoke to them in a way that they could understand. So when he said to them, before Abraham was born, I am, he was saying, I am God. And they understood that, which is why they wanted to kill him as soon as he said it. Because when Moses was on the mountain getting the law, and he asked God to give him his name, no, not the law, but when it was the burning bush before he was sent into Egypt to lead them into exodus, he said, I need to tell them who sent me. And he said, tell them I am sent you. It is one of the first revealed names that God gives to himself. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am, everyone in that room understand, understood exactly what Jesus was saying. This was hard for them to hear. Not that they did not have a concept of a Messiah, because they did. In fact, they were all waiting for a Messiah to come. The part that they couldn't quite get their head around was that God himself was going to come to save them. See, their concept of a Messiah was that he was going to be an emissary of God. Their concept of Messiah was that God was going to send someone on his behalf. They could not quite grasp the reality that God himself left heaven and came to earth. Even though we, they were looking for a Messiah, even though for centuries, raising every generation that came after them to be on the lookout for the Messiah, their idea about what God was supposed to do was so different from what God was planning to do, they didn't even recognize him when he came. Is it possible that God himself is at work in your situation right now, but because it's so different than what you expect, that you're believing Satan's lie, that you are forgotten. See, because that's what he does. When God doesn't operate in your situation the way that you think that he should, you, you, there, there, there is this little whisper that comes that says, God doesn't even know that you're hurting. There's this little whisper that comes that he's, he's too busy taking care of other people. And it could just be that God is actually already in your situation. And he's already at work. And he's already doing incredible things. Number four, page 359. I love the disciples here. This is when they get word that Lazarus, their friend, has died. The disciples at first, they're arguing with Jesus about going back to that area because they know that if they go, they will likely be killed. And one of the disciples says, let us also go that we may die with him. What a great moment of courage the disciples had. And we know that they actually demonstrated that courage. It wasn't just an empty sentiment because they actually went with Jesus. They actually, Jesus didn't say to them, hey, it's okay, you guys can stay here. No, no, no. They went with him. Even though that they knew that they might die. Even though that they knew that someone might be waiting for them to arrest them and to kill them for their support of Jesus. I love this moment where the disciples demonstrate so much courage because it's such a stark contrast as you continue through a few more days when Jesus is actually arrested on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, 56, you find this phrase that says, and they all fled. It's a stark contrast, isn't it? 
the disciples on their way to Lazarus' home, and there's this courage inside of them that says, we're going to go, even if it costs us our lives. And then just a few days later, when Jesus is arrested, where where did that courage go? Where is that sentiment? They all fled for their lives and hid. It's a lot like us, isn't it? There's days where we wake up, and the devil doesn't have a chance in H-E double hockey sticks against us, right? And then there are other days where there's just a they all fled mindset and mentality inside of us. Never forget that when we fail, because we will, right? Let's, we're going to fail. That grace always offers us a way home. See, in the same way that we read about how temptation, there's always an off-ramp for us. If we don't take that off-ramp and we find ourselves down a path and down a road of a behavior and mindset or attitudes, or we find ourselves down a road of not doing the things that we should, and, and, we, and we've crossed the border of rebellion and disobedience and we've given us to temptation, just, just know that there's always a turnoff that gets us back onto the road with God. Grace is always there waiting for us to invite us back onto the straight and narrow. See, I'm not so sure Peter and Judas were that much different in the end. Peter got into a whole lot of trouble as he followed Jesus. And then as the writers of Scripture give us commentary and look back over the life of Judas, we find that he was in a lot of trouble, often stealing money out of the offering. Come on, who does that? Judas. I'm not so sure that Peter and Judas were very different, except that Peter always chose the path of grace to come back to Jesus. See, I think where Judas finally fell short is is that he refused the grace that was available to him to yield his life back to Christ. So how about you tonight? Did you come in here with courage Let's follow after Jesus no matter the consequence? Or did you come feeling as though you have fled and chased after some shiny objects that you know that you should not have? Do you find yourself in a position where maybe Satan has the upper hand right now? What we we would say to you is, hey, grace is always extended to you and is for us every day for the rest of our lives. None of us are going to live a perfect life. All of us are going to make mistakes. My hope is that by being a part of a spiritual community like this one or whatever church that you call home, between now and your last day, you're going to make less mistakes than you did before. We're never going to be perfect, but I want to get a little closer than I am today. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up before and after. What you believe happened before Genesis and what you believe will happen after Revelation, it creates a context for understanding everything in between, especially the enemy of our soul. We, we had this welcome home moment that we are doing every Saturday this year in 2023, not, not because we want to welcome you home to City Life Church, but because we want you to have a sense of having been welcomed home to the family of God. 
believing that there are times where people are going to come into this service, whether you're in this room or whether you're part of our online community, you've logged into one of our streaming platforms, and it might be that no one's ever explained the gospel to you. Maybe you've heard that phrase. Maybe you've heard that phrase used before, but maybe it just feels a little elusive in what it means. And what we would say to you is it means this. It means that every person was born into this world with the same deep desire, and that's to know God and to be known by Him. We've talked a lot about it tonight already. There's an ache inside of you to know your Creator, to know Him as a Father, to, to be seen by Him, to be known by Him, and to know Him in turn, right? It's a, it's a reciprocal relationship. And the challenge that we face is that you and I were born into this world separated from God. And all the moments of disobedience, all the wrong things that we've done, they keep us separated from God. Now the stakes are high because one day you and I are going to breathe our last breath and we're going to stand before God and we're going to have to give an account for our lives. And it breaks our heart to think that there will be people on that day of judgment. That will be the very first time that they ever have a sense of knowing God and being known by Him. And we want to change that as a church. We want to change that as a church. You might feel that this is unfair, but God couldn't be more clear. He, he says the least of those sins, the smallest mistake, is worthy of eternal death. But that's where Jesus comes in with good news because that's what the word gospel means. It means good news. And there's no better news than the news that Jesus offers. You can try to be a better person. You can try to think better thoughts. You can try to do better things. And what we would say to you, you're never going to get there without Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is one of our favorite verses. It says, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Jesus literally promises that when we make a vow of devotion to him, he begins to change us on the inside. Will we still make mistakes? Yes, but we're going to make less mistakes because he gives us new desires. There's something inside of you that doesn't exist that needs to be birthed inside of you that creates new desires for a new way to live by the power of his spirit. And then on top of that, Jesus says, when I, when I died on the cross 2,000 years ago, I didn't just die for the mistakes that you have made. I've died for all the ones that you still might make because grace is always there for you and for me. So that one day, when our life does come to an end and we stand before God on that day of judgment, we don't stand in fear of condemnation. We come with a humble hope that there's an invitation that he extends to us to enter into heaven and eternal life with him because we've been born into his family, which is why we tell the story. Because scripture tells us that when we hear the gospel, there's something inside of us that resonates with the gospel. We call it belief. And that belief eventually gives birth to a confession, what we call a vow of devotion to Jesus. And when we make that vow of devotion to Jesus, we're, we are literally born into the family of God. And we know him as our father. And life begins anew. Stand with me. We're going to close in this, in this song, but before we do, I just want to give you an opportunity. As you look back over to the story of your life, if you can't find a moment in time where you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, you can borrow my words. Make them your own and make this your prayer. If you're part of our online community, you can click the button that's going to appear on the screen and go into a chat, private chat with one of our hosts could talk with you more. But it could be a prayer that sounds something like this, that says, Jesus, I believe. 
that you're God's son, that you died for my sins, that you rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And so on this day, I make a vow of devotion to you. Come and begin to create in me a new heart, like Fred was talking about. I accept the forgiveness that you offer, and that from this day forward, I'm going to live for you. Fill me with your spirit that I might become the person that you've called and created me to be. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.